Hello and welcome to the latest European football show where we thought that it was time to take stock. The leagues are taking shape and reality is starting to bite for a few pre-season contenders. There are interesting tactical stories wherever you look and so we've invited the best possible person along to look at tactical trends, the way that teams are set up and all of the detail that shouty, opinionated people like me miss. So Michael Cox is with us and that at least is worth a round of applause. As well as Michael, we'll be joined by Stuart Robson with his view on Walter Mazzari and Rudy Garcia and what they're doing, as well as, or even better than his beloved Antonio Conte. And a Liverpool title winner of the past tells us what it takes to win a top league and also gives us an idea of what the great Liverpool teams thought about tactics, which I'm sure Michael um, will be interested in. We're going to start our trip around Europe, though, with Germany. Uh, well, Michael will give us his ideas on Dortmund, which will be interesting to hear. But first, Kevin Hatchard, our Bundesliga expert, joins us to talk Mad van Marwijk and many other things. Hi to you, Kev. Hi, Dave. How are you? You well? Yeah, really good, thank you. And um, I think we should start... We normally start in Germany with the the obvious, don't we? But I think we should start with with what's going on at Hamburg. This was a team that were wide open, as previously discussed on this show, that were losing games 6-2 and and cricket scores. And Bert van Marwijk came in to try and calm things down. We thought, and yet that's not happened, has it? No, he hasn't quite calmed things down. Still plenty of goals in their matches. What he has done is he's worked on their morale and he's worked on their fighting spirit because that was something that his predecessor, Torsten Fink, never really got a grip on. And I think if you look at the games that they've had so far, they the opening game under Van Marwijk was away at Eintracht Frankfurt. They twice came from behind to draw 2-2, got a late equaliser in that one. Then they went to Nuremberg and hammered them 5-0, so plenty of goals in the four column and a rare clean sheet. And then in their most recent game, they were at home to Stuttgart and they came from behind three times to draw 3-3. Now, obviously, there's still a big problem defensively because they're still shipping plenty of goals. But what's encouraging uh, from a Hamburg fan's point of view is that the team is fighting back uh, and it's getting results that it wouldn't have got under Torsten Fink. I have no doubt that if they'd uh, gone behind that many times in those games under him, they wouldn't have got uh, the return of five points from three games uh, that they've got. So uh, he's worked on the morale. Rafa van der Vaart, who's the playmaker, has looked good. He's got uh, goals in each of his last two games, so he looks energised. And also the job that he's done uh, with the striker Pierre-Michel Lasaga, who's on loan from Hertha Berlin. Now, he hadn't scored at all under Torsten Fink, but he's got uh, five goals in uh, his three games under Van Marwijk, including a seven-minute hat-trick against Nuremberg. So you can see that Van Marwijk is making positive differences, but he's still got work to do. It's important at that club, isn't it? We, we discussed it on the show when, when you were in the studio with us. It's important that they play a certain way, that they have a certain spirit, you know, as previously discussed. Van Marwijk could never go in there and just uh, close them down and try and win games 1-0. That's just not the way that they do things, is it? No, and to his credit, he hasn't really tried. Uh, And I think he's aware as well of what he's got to work with. Uh, They've played expansive football. They've scored plenty of goals. But that back four is still a huge problem. And if you look at the personnel that he's been using, uh, Marcel Janssen, the left-back, who I really like, but... Uh, as I'm sure Michael Cox would be well aware, very good going forward, but has big problems defensively sometimes. So uh, tactically, sometimes he can be a bit of a problem. Heiko Vesterman, uh, 
an experienced centre-back but capable of bad mistakes. Johan Juru, for my money, an accident waiting to happen. And he's brought in the youngster, Jonathan Tarr, who was very promising in uh, some of the youth teams. So he's come in uh, and been blooded and uh, he's trying his best. But as a unit, they are a big problem. So I think he'll have to wait until January see if he can make some changes. Yeah, Heiko Vesterman always interests me because he was a, a sort of lunatic fullback, uh, pushed forward and couldn't defend and then has ended up being a, being a centre-half. Um, elsewhere in Germany, away from the big teams, Kevin, uh, a change at Nuremberg as well and, and one that needed to happen. Yeah, it's been a strange old few weeks at, uh, at Nuremberg because uh, they've kind of changed. Traditionally, their problem has been scoring goals, but... Their problem this season has been at the other end. They're yet to keep a clean sheet in any of their nine games. They haven't won any of their nine Bundesliga games. So uh, Mikael Wiesinger, uh, the coach, was uh, sacked after uh, that 5-0 home defeat to Hamburg. Wiesinger reacted pretty badly to that sacking. Uh, he attacked the club. He said uh, he hadn't got enough support. said there was a general negative attitude uh, around the place and also uh, said that in the transfer market he simply hadn't been backed up. They uh, lost Tim Closer, who was one of their best defenders. He went to Wolfsburg uh, in the summer and they didn't really replace him. So defensively they've had problems. Gertjen Verbeek, who's uh, a Dutch coach, 51 years old, he's come in. Um, he signed a deal until 2015, so they obviously feel uh, that he's the man to take them forward. But he wasn't their first choice. They approached the Austria coach, Marcel Koller, first. Uh, there have been reports suggesting they went for Rennie Merlinstein as well, the former Manchester United coach, uh, but uh, he turned them down. So Verbeek knows that he wasn't first choice. He speaks fluent German. That will help. Um, he had an impressive first press conference talked about how much he'd fallen in love with the club, which seems a bit premature to me, but there we go. Um, he's an attacking coach. So the question is, can he get the balance right between them going forward and uh, playing to his principles, but also defending well? Because at the moment, they're just not, and that's what's doing them in week in, week out. I love the idea of a coach going to Nuremberg, of all places, and professing to have fallen in love with the, the power and tradition of the club on, it, on his first day in the, in the job. Um, Kevin, Michael's going to give us his uh, tactical analysis around Dortmund. We're going to focus on Michael's views because we haven't had them on the show yet this season. But just give us a, an idea of your thoughts. It was a wonderful result for them um, against Arsenal, a terrific performance. They, they've been a little bit in and out, haven't they? But do you think things are settling down now for Klopp? I think they are, but I, I wasn't massively impressed. I, I thought... Uh, the pressing was good. What, what's been interesting um, is that Jurgen Klopp has, has made um, a big play of how they've changed their pressing and that's uh, how they've improved in the Champions League because when they first came into the Champions League, they were trying to press all the, tri all the time, trying to play high energy all the time uh, and they were struggling. He said what he changed is knowing when to press and when not to. I thought their pressing was very good against Arsenal, uh, and it was in evidence for the opening goal for uh, um, Qatarian uh, when they uh, pressed Ramsey into making that mistake on the edge of his own box. My only worry about them was I thought they dropped off a bit. I thought they started the first half really well and then dropped off a bit and let Arsenal back into it. And second half, in the first 15, 20 minutes of that second half, it looked as though there was only going to be one winner. Dortmund, very, very good indeed, but again, dropped off a bit. And I think this comes back to worries about their squad strength because they've had a few injury problems. That's put pressure on a fair few players who've had to play more minutes than perhaps uh, they would normally have had to. 
And Klopp has admitted in the last couple of weeks, a couple of his players are running on empty. And at times against Arsenal, I thought that was the way it looked. How does that sort itself out? I mean, will there be money, do you think? Would, would, would Klopp be the kind of coach to go and spend in January if they're pushing for the league and the Champions League still? Possibly, but he did spend a fair bit in the summer. Of course, a lot of that was the Mario Goetze money. So uh, there, there is money to spend, but Klopp is, uh, as Wenger is at Arsenal sometimes, is fairly bloody-minded about these things. And he has a lot of faith in his young players, guys like Jonas Hoffman, who he believes uh, are very much ready for the first team now. So it's possible that they could bring in one or two bodies. The, the guy they really miss, I think, is Ilkay Gundogan in midfield because uh, he exerts control over that midfield. He's got a lot of energy in there. And although Bender and Shaheen played well against Arsenal, I, I think Gund- they missed Gundogan. OK, well, it's going to be interesting to uh, to see how that one develops, to see whether Dortmund can really build on the Champions League uh, last season. Uh, they're obviously going to be a power at German level, but can they take it that step further and, and maybe win the thing? Kevin, uh, thanks very much indeed for your time. Really good to talk to you, mate. No problem. Pleasure as always. Uh, Kevin Hatchard, uh, not many people know more about the Bundesliga than him. What are, what are your views, though, of, uh, of Dortmund thus far? Not just in the Arsenal game, but the way that you know, Klopp's just trying to change things and progress them, isn't he? Because that's the kind of coach he is. Yeah, definitely. I think in a strange way that the, the loss of Gutsa has helped them evolve because it means they've brought in Mkhitaryan and, uh, and Aubameyang on the right. And I think in terms of individuals, they've actually got the best side that Klopp has, Klopp has ever had. You know, that's a really good front four now they've got with Royce and Lewandowski. I agree on the squad size and I think when it's a, when it's a side like Dortmund that is so energetic that is a big factor. They're not a team that sits back, defends and counterattacks, and, and runs a little bit. The stats from the Arsenal game last night were quite interesting. They ran about 12 kilometres more than Arsenal over the 90 minutes. And it kind of contradicts what Klopp has been saying, as Kevin mentioned. He's talking about how they've improved because they're running less this season. But last night, it was really obvious that they were more energetic. And actually, that uh, 11 and a half kilometres was exactly the distance that Grosskreutz uh, ran throughout the night. And he was the guy who eventually won the game with the good cross for Lewandowski because he was just getting up and down. And so I do think it's maybe not so much about tactics, but about fitness and about you know preserving the players. And already they look as if they could do with a bit of a winter break, which isn't a great sign in, what, mid-late October. Yeah, I mean, that's not sustainable, is it, when you're you know running that much further than the opposition, albeit they won't be doing that every week in the Bundesliga against lesser opposition, but surely you can't keep that up. They do have a long winter break, mm-hmm. but so does everyone else. So it's all relative, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And they just don't have... You know, you look at the bench last night, for example, they didn't have names that were going to come on and change the game, with the exception of Aubameyang, who I think is probably a better player than Blazkowski, but defensively, obviously, wasn't fancied. They didn't have the game changes and a couple of injuries, and I really fear for them. Um, interesting, Marco Royce, you've already mentioned, but it's interesting sometimes when, a, to use a Nasser saying cricket term, a gun player leaves a club, that someone else has to step up. And, and Goetze leaving can end up being a really good thing because it allows um, Royce to... He had to come and take on the mantle and become the man, become the gun player, and he, and he really has, hasn't he? I agree. In fact, I often thought Royce was maybe Dorman's key player more than Goetze last season. I, I just think that he was playing a slightly different role. He was wider and he's, he's a very diagonal player. You know, you look at his, his movements, he's always cutting inside straight away. He's a very direct player. Um, and the way that they play that is kind of a strange compromise between pressing high up the pitch but then winning the ball deep and counter-attacking. He can do either of those things. And I think he's become, maybe along with Gundogan, who's been injured, and I think they have suffered without him, I think Royce is probably their key player. So in terms of your sort of, uh, it's not a half-term report, but in terms of your tactical report on Dortmund so far, still very good but unsustainable maybe? 
I think so. You just look at Bayern and, you know, you look at Bayern's second team and you realise how strong they are. I think over the course of you know, 34 games, isn't it? Not 38 games, which I suppose helps Dortmund a little bit. But over the course of a season, I just think Bayern will be too strong. And maybe the Champions League will be Dortmund's best chance of uh, getting a trophy. And, and are Bayern still the best team around, do you think? Are they the, the best team that, that you've watched this season? Yeah, I think their performance against Manchester City really confirmed that. That was one of the few games they've had against really top opposition. And it's the same as last season. They they seem able to play pretty much any way they want. They can counter-attack, they can dominate possession, they can make it physical if they have to. They've just got everything and it's tough to know for opponents how they're going about trying to beat them. It's interesting as well, isn't it? Whenever they're questioned, they come up with the answer a little like the great Manchester United teams, actually. They, not, not really brinksmanship with Bayern. They don't normally leave it too late, but they were trailing, weren't they, against Mainz and that looked like mm-hmm. it might be a... And then they end up cruising and almost moving up five gears and making sure they win the game. Yeah, they always seem to have problems against Mainz. Tuchel always seems to come up with quite clever pressing tactics to disturb them. But like you say... They always have an answer and they've got so many tactical options as well. I mean, they can play Mandzukic or they can bring in Gutzer to play in that position in a completely different role. Muller's a kind of hybrid of the two. There's just so many options at Guardiola's disposal. And they're doing all of this, remember, as we always say, without future Ballon d'Or winner Thiago Alcantara. Um, <laughs> so there you go. Now, we felt that we bombarded you a little bit with France last time. So after our encounter on a train with Daniel Leboja, we're going to steer clear of the Paris Saint-Germain against Monaco debate and reignite it maybe next time. Um, a word, though, I must say for René Girard at Lille um, and also Zlatan's goal against Bastia. Um, one thing about René Girard is he's he's one of those ex French Football Federation coaches, of course, who has gone to to a club like Houllier did, like uh, uh, Dominic did as well, of course. But um, René Girard's proving at Lille they're not going to win the league that his work at Montpellier wasn't a flash in the pan in any way, and they they might be the one that end up finishing third, Michael. I mean, it's a he's a terrific coach on the quiet, you know, the the old man Girard. Yeah, he seems to be doing well, and it seems quite open for that third place. Obviously, PSG and Monaco are going to be, I would expect, 15, 20 points clear of the pack at the end of the season. But Marseille are wobbling. You know, their their performance again last night against Napoli was really quite awful. And I think there's, yeah, it's a very open race for third. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and a word about Zlatan's goal. You must have enjoyed that, mustn't you? It was fantastic. It's one of those rare goals where it's both unbelievable and yet completely typical of the man you know it's like when Antonio Di Natale thumps in a volley from a ridiculous angle how can it be classic and yet such a good goal but he's done that five or six times now hasn't he it's, it's incredible yeah it's extraordinary it doesn't matter the opposition but the man uh, steals headlines uh, all the time uh, incidentally I finished Latin's wonderful book a couple of weeks ago and that's the prize in this week's quiz which returns to the theme you'll be pleased to hear of the one from a month ago the one that led us to have a Cars 11 which contained mini Samways um, as so the journey continues we've been to the super Market. We've said hello to James McCarthy and Denver Spa, and we've walked past the Jimmy Floyd taxi rank. We've got in our Morgan Amalfiatuno, and now we are home. So we need a kitchen 11. That is the theme this month. Um, the manager at the moment will be um, Professor Joseph Fenglosh, and uh, my mate Carl has come up with Pavel Kuka. Um, he's from Huddersfield, so it works <laughs> with the accent. Um, we want your suggestions then, please, for our kitchen 11. You can include food. And uh, the best answer will receive a copy of I Am Zlatan Ibrahimovic by, well, 
you know who it's by. You haven't got any early thoughts. I, we, we, we're not one of those shows that pre-plans these things, so you're just hearing The Kitchen Eleven for the first time, Michael, so I'm, I'm not necessarily going to be cruel on you. Maybe by the end of the show you can uh, well, come up with something. You've got one already. Well, Kook is going to be hard to beat, isn't it? It's pretty good, that's, isn't it? That's excellent, because that's not even a pun. That is just his name. It's and it genuinely works. good, yeah. and it definitely works for the Yorkshire accent as well, Pavel yeah, Kuka, yeah, so imagine, uh, that's, yeah. that's very much how it works. Um, so Kitchen Eleven, uh, you know where to go. Studio at europeanfootballshow.eu. Talking of Zlatan uh, and the book, Portugal, Sweden... Coming up uh, in the playoffs, it proved that the balls weren't hot, didn't it? That it was a very, very difficult draw for them both. Um, do you think it's a sort of tragedy that everyone talks about, that either Ronaldo or Zlatan's not going to be at the World Cup? It's a bit of a shame, but I remember about this point four years ago, or just over four years ago, there was a situation where it looked like Messi, Ronaldo and Ibrahimovic could not be at the World Cup. So the fact we're going to have two of them isn't a disaster. Personally, I think I'd prefer Portugal to be there just because I think there's more of a chance that they can go to the, the quarters or the semis. I feel with Zlatan and Sweden, he's always going to be you know, a superstar in a relatively average team and, and making the second round at best. Well, that's the point, isn't it? The, the Sweden thing would never have been an issue. Mm. Never have been mm. an issue without Zlatan. No one would ever... Uh, apart from Swedes, would ever worry about Sweden not being at a World Cup. The, yeah, you know, absolutely. The, you know, yeah. it's, it's interesting, isn't it? But because of him, uh, everyone suddenly cares. There's, there's, there's a logic to that, but it's, I think it's been a bit over-egged, isn't it? I think so, and it's strange that you know everyone says Portugal, the classic situation, they've got a great team but no striker. Sweden have got the opposite. They haven't got a great team, but they've got a fantastic striker. But surely Portugal... I, I, this was always the thing that Hugo Almeida's not good enough, Pauleta was never good enough, but they've got the best centre-forward in the world, haven't they? He's just... Is he regarded as a centre-forward? But he is. It's a strange situation, isn't it? I think he he wants to play as almost a striker but needs someone else there kind of distracting the defenders. I don't think he likes being the highest man up the pitch. But I'd like to see him as the number nine and bring in Danny of uh, Zenit St. Petersburg, who I think is a fantastic player. But uh, to be fair, Postiga's done well at uh, Valencia so far, so maybe he can perform next summer. It's just, it's just strange because all of the physical attributes, we, we're used to thinking of him as a... Uh, you know, a, a wide man or someone who plays just in behind. But if all the attributes and what he's good at, great in the air. I think if we thought of him and always had done as a centre forward, we'd see Ronaldo in that way, wouldn't we? Yeah, absolutely. And it looks like Ancelotti has been trying to play him as a second striker this season with Benzema just up there. So maybe he will kind of get used to that position higher up the pitch. His shot statistics this season, Ronaldo, incredible. He's having something like 9.4 shots per game, which is more than the majority of sides in La Liga probably. But... Uh, yeah, we'll have to wait and see. Well done for getting through that whole discussion without using the phrase false nine. You're, you're, definitely, <laughs> you're definitely coming on. This is not a show for hipsters, as, as you well know, and, and that's why you're on it. But um, the other playoffs, I thought it was great to see Iceland have a chance. Um, not that there's certainties to go through, but it gives them a chance. That I thought they were going to get a horrible draw, and Croatia is not a horrible draw, particularly given that they've just sacked their coach. Yeah, it's going to be a strange one because on paper, Croatia are much the better team, but you think Iceland are probably more settled, more organised. Um, I mean, I don't want to patronise Iceland too much because they're clearly oh, a, a very good football team, but it, I was looking at the list of uh, qualified teams the other day and there was no kind of, I don't want to say novelty side, but side that we're not used to having at the World Cup. You know, you think of someone like Jamaica in 1998 or uh, even North Korea last time out was, was kind of strange to see them. And just having someone different and a load of players that... You know, for the most part, I'm not aware of. I'd, I'd enjoy seeing a different team at the World Cup. Yeah, and it, it does, when that happens, it takes you back a bit because that is where the World Cup has lost. It's television's fault, so I'm not going to uh, sit here and on my high horse about it. But we see so much now that there aren't those surprise teams anymore. And I, I agree with you completely. It would be nice. Neither of us would be able to name... Well, a few of them, but the entire Iceland 11 and formation, I don't think not even you would be able to do that. And it would be really good to see them because that is that slight issue. In the old days, when you're younger than me, but when we were growing up, you'd think, wow, 
Chile. Yeah, you know, yeah, I've never seen yeah. any of their players play, and now we we know pretty much the whole team, and so it would be great just to have that. It's not patronising to say novelty value, I don't think. OK, well, we'll go novelty value then. Yeah, OK. okay well, we'll uh, of course, Iceland could very much play a, a huge part in the uh, in the Kitchen eleven as well. Um, uh, as I've said on Twitter, um, probably a little bit too much because I think it's funny, uh, Kerry Katonison is waiting uh, eagerly to find out the result of uh, Iceland against Croatia. And just elsewhere, briefly... The, uh, France, Ukraine's interesting uh, because it's France. Um, they should be okay, shouldn't they, France? And it does seem a bit of a shame with due respect, and I mean with little respect, um, Greece, Romania playing each other for a place when you've got Portugal, Sweden. I know it's the way the draw works, but it seems like a shame, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it is a shame. Um, but Greece, to be fair, have been picking up excellent results over the last few months. I think five consecutive one nils, which sounds vaguely familiar, doesn't it? Ten years ago now. Uh, their year of 2004 win. But I always quite enjoy watching Greece in a kind of strange, sadistic way. They're, they've got absolutely no intention to create or be inventive, but they sometimes have a really good defence, very physically strong. And if they can get a couple of attacking players firing, I think they could be a decent side at the World Cup. You're, you're not suggesting they could win it, are you? Not quite, no. But uh, I think they could go further than sides that have less experience. You know, you know what they like would that. be, though, Michael? They would be a genuine dark horse. A genuine <laughs> dark horse. Yeah. Not the sort of dark horse... Not that, Belgium. Not Belgium, <laughs> not Colombia, not the dark horses. Not Chile. Not the, they're not dark yeah, horses. Yeah. Their teams... Arturo Vidal, the best player in Serie A, plays for Chile. They are not a dark yeah. horse. But Greece genuinely would be. Not quite sure about James Montague's uh, very brave dark horse Egypt. Uh, I think they may <laughs> just be struggling uh, in terms of the World Cup. Uh, we can't really talk too much about them on a, a European football show, but what a performance that was. It was one of the most extraordinary collapses I've ever seen from the team that traditionally is is dull at Greece and wins 1-0 and keeps things tight but it was do you watch that game it was astonishing I saw the highlights of it yeah it looks very strange but I'm quite pleased to see Ghana are getting mm. through because I think they're potentially a really good side if they can get the group together if they can get the big players wanting to play I think maybe they could repeat you know last time they got to the quarterfinals and actually talking of teams that with sort of shock shock value and, and novelty value and so on. Yet again in the world under seventeens at the moment, Nigeria have turned up mm-hmm. with a whole lot of players that, you know, scouts have barely heard of and they look absolutely ridiculous. And bet, yeah. the one they're opening game six one and players just to follow for the future. Ghana do it all the time at the World Under twenty. So there is at least still that when you watch those tournaments uh, on Eurosport. And of course uh, we are very much in association with Eurosport here. It's a it's a plug, but it's it's worth watching um some of these uh, these young teams and that Nigerian side that destroyed Mexico 6-1. I mean, it was a very, very uh, special team. But after that high-octane opener to the European football show, we move to the slower, more sedate world of Serie A because that's what Serie A is all about, right? Slow, stultifying, passionless play, empty stadia and disinterested players. That's right, isn't it, you haters? That's why nine out of ten of this weekend's games had over two and a half goals and why Fiorentina beat Juve 4-2 in one of the classic games in recent years. Clever people like our listeners know that Serie A is great. It is the best league in Europe. And Michael that Roma are currently one of the best teams in Europe, aren't they? What's your view on Roma so far? Uh, you must have been surprised by them. Absolutely. I didn't think they'd be challenging for the title. I thought Champions League at best. I expected Juve, Napoli, Milan and maybe Fiorentina to be challenging for, the, uh, for Syria. And I think that's the fantastic thing about this league. I don't think anywhere else you know, in Germany, England, uh, or Spain or even France, you don't really get outsiders actually putting together a really strong challenge for the league. And I think, you know, it's not just that Roma have a 100% record. It's the fact that they've come from a position where we expected them to be fifth or sixth and they've got a 100% record. They've played some very good teams, so they're not just doing it against, you know, the bottom three. 
And I think they've got every chance of being in the hunt when it comes to April, May. Yeah, what, what's Garcia done, though, from a tactical point of view? Because Roma have always been tactically fascinating. Spalletti was such an innovator with the strikerless system. And since then, Capello played a particular way there and were successfully too. But what, what has Garcia done? Uh, James Easton told us last time that Garcia um, is so happy to be working with intelligent players, players who understand football intelligence, who understand it. Finally, he's able to get his ideas across. So how do you think that it's working? Why have they only conceded one goal, for example? To be honest, I think the major thing is that he's come in with, OK, a set way he wants to play, but he's also been quite pragmatic. And If you look at uh, Luis Enrique and you look at Zeman last year, they were so committed to a certain style of football that at times clearly wasn't suiting the players. And I think he's just been quite intelligent and said, OK, we've got you know a certain group of players that are good in certain roles. And he hasn't done anything special in terms of positioning. You know, maybe Florenzi in the front three was a bit of a surprise to me. But overall, it's just good players playing intelligent system, playing in positions they're comfortable in. And I don't think it's majorly a tactical thing. They just look more prepared, a little more motivated. And particularly De Rossi and Totti just seem to have, you know, the spirit back that they had maybe three or four years ago. They look just a little bit, a little bit more motivated, a little bit more fired up. It's interesting, isn't it? Because that's what a lot of people are saying. And I'm not suggesting that Garcia's success proves that you know tactics aren't important. But what it does show is that other things are very important too because player belief in him seems mm-hmm. to be a major thing. And as you say, De Rossi in particular, who'd lost all faith in Zeman and, and, and Andrea Tzoli to an extent as well, is suddenly believing again. And, and both of those key iconic players clearly think they can win the league. Absolutely. And I think the best example, and, and everyone has, has voiced their surprise at how well he's played, but Jovino, if, you, if you're looking at confidence, that's the obvious man who you know really struggled, particularly last season at Arsenal, but is now in there. And he, he, looks like he's, he looks like he's a world beater. You know, he's going past players all the time. Even when something doesn't come off, he still wants the ball. He's still running at players. I mean, tactically, if there's maybe two interesting points uh, about Rome, I think one is obviously Totti in his role. He's playing as the central striker, but is basically a creator coming deep, uh, playing the ball forward to Florenzi and uh, and Jovino. In the game against um, Inter a couple of weeks ago, the way he came deep at corners to prompt counterattacks was, was quite stunning. And the other interesting point is De Rossi, who's playing so deep, he's almost been a third centre-back. And I think that's a key reason why they've only conceded one goal, because every time the centre-backs get dragged out wide, De Rossi's always there. And he's the kind of player that, if he was a centre-back by trade, I think he'd be one of the best in the world. He can play anywhere, De Rossi. And, and remember as well, bravery and belief and, and things, you get rid of Osvaldo and Lamella and Marquinhos, who many would have said... Were their three best players last year? Mm-hmm. Many, were, I, I think I probably would have said that. Maybe not Osvaldo, but the other mm. two definitely. And uh, it's incredible, really is incredible, and money to spend in the window as well potentially. Um, you mentioned that game against Inter. Well, BT Sports Stuart Robson has watched a lot of Roma this season, not to mention pretty much every team in Europe, of course. We got on to Rudy Garcia when I spoke to him, but first I did ask him about the job being done by Walter Mazzari at Inter. Well, I haven't seen them at their very best. I saw them uh, have their only loss against Roma, where they didn't play particularly well. And I saw them against Torino, where they were down to 10 men after a a very short time in the game. I think he has got the balance right. He's got his wing-backs playing much better, you know, because he plays with wing-backs, he plays with three centre-halves. 
Uh, I still think they're going to struggle if you play with Renocchia as one of your main centre-halves. I'm not a, a fan of his. Uh, Juan Jesus doesn't see enough of the danger, so that's an area where he's, I think he's got to improve. But he's certainly getting the best out of Jonathan uh, down the right-hand side. He's getting the best out of Nagatomo. They're certainly playing well in those sort of areas. In midfield, Cambiasso is the dominant player in that midfield area. Not only is he closing the ball, and he's now looking like a good passer of the ball as well. And I think with Guarin on one side and Tadere on the other side, trying to make those forward runs, they look quite a strong midfield three but I think it's just up front where they might be lacking Alvarez we know is a good runner with the ball he's going to play or has played just behind the main striker Palacio I've seen him play well I've seen him score goals I've seen him play very poorly on occasions and not really be involved in the game and not make enough forward runs so I think Mazzari's getting the best out of the players he's got at the moment I think if he wants to go to the next level he's got to go and do some transfer business and get better players in the front areas I suppose you could argue that they fell just short in Naples with Cavani in the side, with Hamšík and Lavezzi in the side. But, of course, he was constantly under pressure. Lavezzi ended up going and he knew he was losing Cavani. So it was maybe time for, for, for Mazzari to move on. There is a feeling with him that he's an exceptional coach of a team up to a point. You've just touched upon it. Inter have got to a point. Do you think he's good enough to, to push Inter on and, and win the title with him, given time? Is, would they be good enough to, to leapfrog Juve and Roma and I teams like this? You have to remember what he did at Napoli. When he went to Napoli, they weren't one of the top sides. He made them into a top side. You know, ever, whenever I watched them, I knew exactly how they were going to play. I thought they worked really hard in midfield. You knew the shape of the team. You knew what he was trying to do. I think he had good forward players in that team. He didn't have particularly good defenders. When we think that Aronica played as the left-sided centre-half for so long uh, and they tried to get other players in and it didn't quite work for him. I like to see coaches where I can see what they're trying to do. I can see that with Conte at Juventus. I can now see that at, uh, at Roma. Uh, and I can also see it wherever Mazzari is the manager. And that is the sign, of, for me, of a good coach, where you can see exactly what his team are trying to do. The interesting thing this season, from your point of view, though, is you, you, you think Conte's been fantastic and how well organised Juve are. I'm not putting words in your mouth. I know that's what you think. But suddenly, he's got a rival, hasn't he? In the shape of, of Rudy Garcia, who's... Always very good at Lille, but suddenly on a different level almost. And he's got players playing at, the, at their best. I mean, who would have thought that um, you know, the Arsenal, Jovino, would go to, to Roma and be such a threat on the counter? We know he's a good player. I've seen him play for Arsenal, make forward runs. I've seen him play you know, for Ivory Coast and make forward runs. But he's been absolutely outstanding for, for Roma at the moment. And Totti playing on that sort of uh, withdrawn centre-forward role, allowing other players to make runs beyond him. But the thing that he's done so well, he's made them so solid defensively because that was the thing that always let Roma down in the last couple of three years they look disorganized defensively he's also lost one or two of his best defenders but he's brought others in and they seem to be, to be uh, getting a good understanding and he, he's another coach where you can see exactly what they're trying to do you can although they've got great rotation you know where the rotation's coming so it, it's, it's that's the sign again of a really good coach and just finally do you think that Inter are probably going to fall short this season their results would suggest that particularly the, the one against Roma well though they played against Juve do you think Conte is going to end up winning that battle. It's going to be great to watch, isn't it? Because Roma are piling on the pressure. Juve were beaten at the weekend by Fiorentina. But do you think in the end that the master Conte will just outthink the master Garcia if, if it's those two going for the title? If it's those two going for the title, I think Roma can hang on. I've seen them play so well in this first few weeks. Nothing suggests at the moment that they're going to drop off from that sort of pace. Uh, you, you, I still think that Juventus 
are the best team. You know, I've seen them so many times over, you know, they're so consistent over so many years. And, and with Conte as the manager, I know, you know, the back three are, 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 are being brilliant together. That midfield combination's been excellent. The wing-backs playing high up the field, you know, doing a really good job. The front two combining. Tevez, don't think he's been at his very best yet, but he will get better. But that has to be the front combination. Vucinic and Tevez, that's when they're at their very best. So I think Juventus... I think are the best team, but I think Roma, with the confidence they've got, with the new manager, with the way things are going, they may just win it. Inter, they'll be some way below, but not that far. Well, interesting with Stuart there, the great Antonio Conte lover in terms of his system and the way that uh, he plays, but he really thinks, I was amazed when he said that, he really thinks Roma can win the title and, and almost thinks that they will, which uh, mm. that, gets, that, that gets me going. I think we're going to be in for a great, great season. I would love to see it. I mean, I've found... You're not as sure, though, are you? No, I, I don't think they have the squad. I think, to be fair, the next three weeks when they're going to be without Francesco Totti, who's got a, a groin strain, I believe, I think that's going to be really interesting because they've got two options in, in my book. They brought on Borriello against Napoli the other day. I've never been a big fan of Borriello. I think he's always been a little bit out of his depth at the top clubs. But I thought he was magnificent. He, he won the aerial balls. He held the ball up. And I th- thought they adjusted to playing slightly longer passes but not compromising their game, not just scrapping it and chucking it in the box. And they got runners around him. But the other option is uh, Adam Lijic, who was fantastic at Fiorentina last year. And I wonder whether he can play that totty role, whether he can just float between the lines, slip balls through to Giovinio and Florenzi. And so I think this is maybe the pivotal part of their season, how they cope without Totti, who, you know, for my money, has been the best player in Serie A this season. Yeah, and who may still be going to the World Cup. Mark Langdon said on this very show Totti should go to the World Cup, and we laughed at him. But since then, Prandelli has come out and said... If he was playing as well as this with a month to go until the World Cup, he would take him. And uh, wouldn't that be something? To see the old man at the World Cup, it'd be fabulous. Well, it's strange. You could potentially have a front trio of Totti, Di Natale and Luca Toni, couldn't you? Luca Toni's been banging the goals in and, of course, has worked with Prandelli before. So you never know with Italy. They always do seem to have you know, uh, something of a wild card and a veteran coming back. And that's the good thing about Syria. Maybe because of the slower pace of the league. Players can do it into their late 30s and Javier Zanetti's 40 now and is still doing it. And it is quite nice to see that. Yeah, Del Piero's banging the goals in as well in Australia. So yeah, yeah, you yeah. mentioned the front three, bring uh, bring Alex back. I'm not sure that's going to happen. Um, a quick word about Inter as well before we move on. Stuart talked about them. He, ha- he had a heck of a job there, Matsari. And it's going to take longer than a season to get it right because they were such a shambles. He's actually done OK, hasn't he, given what he had to work with and, and morale too. Yeah, he's done much better than I expected, to be honest. I thought they'd be struggling to finish in the European places. They were, as you say, such a mess last season. I think it's it's a long-term project. I think you've got to give him two or three years. He's changed the, the system. I think there's a a slightly different mentality that comes with Matt Sarri. There's, there's a kind of modesty about the way that they approach games. They do react to the opposition. They do play on the counter-attack. And I think he'll come good. I, I, I do struggle with Matt Sarri. In terms of, I don't think he, he gives them what Garcia has given Roma, which is that winning mentality. But I think in terms of the positioning and the tactics, he's a very good coach. I mean, the, the accusation always thrown at him is that he's a very, very good coach of a smaller team. Mm-hmm. And when they get big, like Napoli did, he yeah. struggles at that top level. And, and given the work he did at Regina, which was just spectacular, mm-hmm. it, it's probably fair. It, it might seem a bit unfair to dismiss him, but he's not really proved that he can take a big team on and win something. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I don't generally like to speak about managers in this way. It just feels kind of harsh. and you yes. know, Especially from our position, we've never been in that situation. Yeah. I feel quite bad. But I think it is 
Um, you know, when you look at Antonio Conte, he's clearly a good tactician, but there's clearly something more that he gives his players. And I think that's the question mark with uh, with Matt Sarri. Maybe that has to come from the dressing room, from players like uh, Zanetti, for example. Napoli maybe didn't have those veterans who could play that role. Yeah, possibly. And don't be too feel too bad about talking about them that way. They're earning an awful lot of money to, to get <laughs> criticised as well. We'll hear from Jim Beglin soon about what it takes to win a league title, but just interested in your view of Spain as well. We, again, we haven't spoken to you about Barca and Real and Atletico, and I know that's a whole podcast in its own right, talking about those three, but but what have you noted from Spain, particularly with the Clasico coming this weekend? Well, I think Barcelona have been very impressive. I think Martino's done a really good job um, to come in there in a situation where, you know, let's remember Barca didn't want to have to appoint a new manager. You know, Villanova was too ill to continue and it was such a last-minute appointment, really, um, when you consider this as a side who, who prides themselves on, on it being a long-term project, on them breeding their own managers. But I think he's done a very good job. He's, he's come in, he's embraced Barcelona's core principles, but he's also been a little bit more pragmatic. I don't think they're pressing quite as much. Um, the game against Rio Vallecano when they won 4-0 showed that they're going to counter-attack, they're going to play the ball forward quickly. Um, the player I've been most impressed with this season has been Busquets, who I've always liked. I've always thought he's been a good defensive midfielder. But I think he's become, with the exception of Messi, their key player now. I think Xavi and Iniesta have maybe plateaued a little bit. Xavi's probably passed his best, although he's still a very good player. But Busquets is playing a really good all-round role. He's winning the ball in front of the centre-backs, but he's also pressing really high, winning the ball really high up the pitch. Um, and he just dominates games with his physicality, which I think is maybe something you don't associate with Barcelona. And are they the ones you think that are going to, uh, even though drawing nil-nil lately, are they going to go on and win the league? And uh, Atletico, mighty impressive, but just not the depth and strength to, to actually win the thing. I think so. Although Atletico, I think Simeone has rotated his players really well. If you look at the appearance stats for the midfielders, I don't think anyone has started more than six or seven games. So he's doing well, but like you say, they, they don't quite have the strength and depth. Although Barca don't really. Barca have always had quite a, uh, a small squad and they only brought in Neymar this summer and lost quite a few players. So we'll have to wait and see whether they have a, a bit of a dip in February or March. And what about your tactical view on Ancelotti at Real? Is that working out? I, I, Similar weaknesses seem to be there than were there last year, don't they? Yeah, pretty much. I've always been a little bit sceptical about Ancelotti when it comes to finding his correct shape. I think what Ancelotti does is he gets the big players on side and he basically throws together his best 11 and, and kind of hopes that it will sort itself out on the field. I think he's had big problems, particularly with Ronaldo and Isco, who on paper are two fantastic players and should work well together. He doesn't know whether he wants Ronaldo central or Ronaldo out wide and Isco will kind of go in between. And that's without bail, you know, the bail factor. And I think Angel Di Maria has done a really good job in the last couple of seasons providing that balance being defensive, being wider than Ronaldo, not cutting in all the time. And I fear that with Ronaldo and Bale in the same team, it will become a little bit too predictable. Is, is the Bale thing, I, mean, I know it's early days, but is that going to turn into one of these nightmare transfers, do you think, for both parties? It, it, or is it just simple that he's got an injury, he'll get fit and he'll be fine? I think he'll, he'll become a very good performer. I, I think when you're talking about a world record fee, I struggle to see how he'll live up to that in a league with Messi and Ronaldo, who are you know, by far, as far as I'm concerned, by far the best two players of all time. It's as if Bell's expected to exceed their form, and I just don't think that's possible. Messi and Ronaldo are by far the best two players of all time. Did I say that? Yes, you did, yeah. Well, best two players in the world at the moment. I think it's arguable they're the best of all time when you consider the progression of football physically and tactically. Um, 
But I didn't mean to say that. I meant at the moment. Okay. But, uh, they've, they've got they've got a decent shout though. I think. Yeah, there's a whole lot of people in Naples who aren't happy uh, with you at the moment <laughs> about yeah. that comment. Um, finally, we turn our attention to the Premier League in England. What looks uh, an absolutely enthralling battle, like the one in Serie A. Um, here on the European Football Show, we talk a lot about consistency and what it takes to win a title. But we wondered what someone who's actually done it might say. So I caught up with Jim Beglin, title winner with Liverpool and long time, of course, of ITV Sport, about what it takes to be a champion, whatever league you might play in. Well, I kind of look back on my own experience, Dave, and um, I was fortunate to be part of a really experienced kind of um, lineup, um, a, a team that had kind of done it over the years and, and that had been built up slowly but surely, and it was a very kind of solid setup. And the one thing I'd say, looking back on certainly the Liverpool side I played in, was um, experience and character. You know, there was, there was a lot of experience in that side and, and big characters and, and, and guys who'd, who'd kind of dig in for each other. You had that togetherness, that kind of team spirit, and I think that's important. And I think if you, if you want to kind of do well on, on both fronts, then I think that that's a must throughout your side. You have to have those, those big key players um, with, with a lot of experience under their belts and, of course, that, that character to keep everybody else going. And it's, it's simple. It's a simple thing to say, but people talk about Roma, for example, having no European commitment whatsoever, obviously putting a tremendous run together. Uh, the lack of European commitment is surely going to tell. I'm not, I'm not asking you whether they're going to win the title or not. I know you haven't seen a great deal of them, but it's got to give them an advantage, hasn't it, physically more than anything? Yeah, I think Roma have always been capable. I mean, I, I remember the Roma side I watched last season. Um, great going forward I mean they could do silly things at the back at times but scored a lot of goals and they were very exciting to watch I, I think not to have that involvement I mean they missed out they could have maybe nicked the, the Europa League and got into that but I think you know nowadays I think once upon a time they felt that maybe um, it was a case of reducing the kind of uh, domestic fixtures to help your European cause I think now there's so many fixtures in that league I honestly think that it probably hampers teams it gets in the way and it just confuses matters league wise so I, I think for Roma and the way they've started like so positively this season I, I really do think that it's it's a bonus that they haven't got that to, to even think about and, and they can go kind of marching on and I mean I think after the win over Napoli as well recently um, I, I think they can go upwards and onwards from there I really do think it's a great shot in the arm for them I mean how important is momentum Jim because that's another word that people like me throw around you know you, it's an easy thing to say they won eight in a row they're going to therefore keep going and going but when you were at Liverpool you've got to get over sticky periods haven't you no one apart from Arsenal is going to go the season unbeaten but how important is that momentum just that nicking a point when it should be a defeat nicking a win when it should be a point not playing well and winning was always a thing that was associated with Liverpool sides in the past wasn't it yeah I, I totally agree it's it's vital I mean when you have that momentum it it's like as if you know the, the squad has belief that whatever the situation they're in in any game when they look like losing um, they're going to kind of eke out a draw um, when they look as if they're going to draw a game they're going to eke out a win that's that's the kind of way it goes you just end up with a lot of players in very good habits um, and so there's, there's always something possible at the end of, of any particular 90 minutes. That's the kind of confidence you have when, when we talk about momentum like that. And, and it does. When you go on a run like that, um, even if you're not playing great, you know that there's enough cohesion about what's around you to, um, to dig something out. And, and it, it, it is actually a factor in, in most uh, teams and, and a successful season. And in terms of the, the Premier League at the moment, um, we've got this wide-open competition, it seems. Arsenal are playing a particular style, very stylishly. Manchester City and Chelsea look the ones who are capable of grinding. Your old team, Liverpool, are playing particularly well. 
which would you see as the one who's got the most chance of getting that momentum going and, and, and winning the title? For example, what I'm asking is, can Arsenal win the title playing the way they've been playing every single week in that, with that style and that panache? That's not possible, is it? You need to... You don't need the Mourinho thing to grind it out, maybe. Yeah, I, I listen. I love the way I love watching Arsenal. I love the way they're playing at the moment. As to whether Arsenal are capable of going all the way this season, I've got my doubts. Um, it's fantastic at the moment, but I think over recent seasons, when Arsenal come up against the big teams, the really big games and the top occasions then they've always fallen a little bit short. Now, it remains to be seen as to whether they can get over some of the bigger hurdles that lie ahead, um, both domestically and, and in Europe for them this season. But I, I would look more at the likes of the Chelsea's and the Manchester City's, who I think um, have a depth in their squads as well. I think they've got really good quality on the bench. I know Arsenal do have to a certain degree, but I think those are the teams probably better equipped to to be able to play in different ways on different days and and still manage to come up with with what they need. I think there's, there's still a lot ahead for Arsenal as to as to whether they can go all the way. And for the likes of Liverpool, I think maybe yes they they're up there at the moment. It's probably a little too soon to expect a, a title run from Liverpool. Certainly I think they're much more capable of competing for the top 4 this season, but beyond that I'd I'd be surprised. But I think the 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 two teams for me that seem to have the kind of the depth of squad that you need and the probably the 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 resolve in, in, in their setups would be Manchester City and Chelsea. And just finally, Jim, I, I wanted to ask you something. We, we talk a lot about tactics, uh, us European football aficionados, and maybe sometimes too much, maybe sometimes too little, who knows. But you obviously played in a great team. And I'm, I'm interested because I hear these stories about your team in particular and some of the ones from further back as well in the 70s that, that tactics wasn't necessarily a thing, that there wasn't a, a chalkboard and there wasn't a huge plan and, and so on and so forth. Uh, what can you tell us about what it was like to play in that team? Did you ever talk tactics or did you just go and do a job that you had to do? We basically, back then at Liverpool, I mean, Liverpool were never arrogant about things, but um, they were very, very confident in what they were doing. And because of the, the, the calibre of player and, and, and the calibre of team they had, um, they worried le- very little about the opposition. I mean, you might get one or two little instructions or one or two little tips just before you went out and played, but Liverpool really were all about... We do this, let them worry about what we do. See if they can cope with what we do. And and generally it was that way because Liverpool dictated so many games back then. I think it's it's changed now. When I went on to Leeds, for example, Herod Wilkinson would kind of spend much more time kind of working on what the opposition might do as well, like defending set piece and things. So it became a little bit more tactical. Um, and I think tactics yeah, do, do have a part to play. I think sometimes they're hyped up a little bit too much. But I think nowadays as well, more than ever in the modern game because you know so much as well about opposition teams and, and particularly foreign teams um, you know in, in European football um, that there is an awful lot you can learn about the way they play and and you can be prepared for you know one or two things that they might try to, to do to you but um, but certainly the Liverpool side I was in then generally we kind of never really worried about it they, they were just kind of good enough to let everybody else worry about them and with some of the subtleties, just finally, finally, if, if if I said to most of the players from that squad, let's say you said so-and-so plays a 4-3-3 and I said, I think you'll find it's a 4-5-1, I think I can probably guess the answer of most of that squad to that uh, that comment, couldn't I? Yeah, well, look, I, I always say the same, that we, we get infatuated with systems nowadays, but I think if you keep the ball, you know, every, every system is perfect, if you keep the ball. If you don't keep the ball, then every system will let you down. You know, it's as simple as that for me. 
You're listening to the European Football Show in association with Eurosport. You can join in the Twitter debate at Eurofooty Show and get in touch with your thoughts by email studio at europeanfootballshow.eu. Well, it, interesting what Jim had to say about winning the title, which was um, experience is the most important thing, a, a, along with ability. And once Liverpool had won a couple, the, the, that, that experience really, really came to bear. But I also like the idea of that Liverpool team and tactics. And, I, I, you know, he's not having a go at people like yourself or Jonathan Wilson at all. But I think it's interesting from a player's perspective. He says that, listen, we were so good that we knew we could go out and keep the ball and dominate. So we didn't really think about things like that. So, it, again, it shows a little bit like with Roma, there's more than one way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it reminds me actually of, um, if you read Tony Adams' autobiography, when he's talking about the early days of Wenger, he's speaking about the 1998 FA Cup final, which uh, Arsenal won 2-0 against Newcastle. And he says they didn't mention Newcastle before the game. They didn't say a single word about the opponents. And I think that's definitely possible when you've got a side like Liverpool in the 80s or Arsenal at that point, when they're clearly the best team in the league. They can go out and... I think by not speaking about the opposition, it probably gives the players a confidence boost because you're not having to react. You're not having to worry about opponents. Um, but but I think it, it becomes slightly different when you're a lesser side and you're having to react. Um, I think tactics do play a bigger part then. Yeah, and there is also the argument that you know players don't necessarily know what the coach is doing tactically. He's telling them to go out and do a certain job. He sees the bigger picture. They don't, and that's his job. So there's an argument to say that the great Liverpool title-winning teams may say... Listen, we didn't talk about tactics, but the coach did. And the coach knew exactly what he was doing. So there's always that argument too. Absolutely. And there's a strange thing with tactics where the word tactics is almost inappropriate because if you say tactics, it it means it has to be deliberate. It means the coach has had to do something that he's, he's particularly worked on. But I think some of the great tactical schemes happen either by accident or the players kind of just sort themselves out on the pitch. I mean... For example, to go back to Arsenal, you look at how they played in kind of the Invincibles era with Omri out to the left, Burkamp drifting deep and Pires cutting inside. I doubt that was something Wenger worked on or he put on a chalkboard. But it was still fascinating and it still provided lessons for other teams to maybe, you know, this is how you can work in opposition defence. Do you think, going back to the tactics thing, that a lot of people misunderstand what people like you and Jonathan are, are, are trying to say about tactics. I don't want to lump you together because I know you're, you're mm-hmm. different with different thoughts, but there are a lot of people who think that tactics are way over-egged, that it's a sort of a pretentious thing, that it's uh, uh, people trying to be smart Alex about football, trying to prove they know more than others. You know, you know all the, the yeah, accusations. People yeah. say it all the time. Um, and there's a parody account of yours, isn't there, that it's got amusingly named... Still running? I don't know, there was one anyway. Yeah, but, there was, yeah. And that, that sort of... A prevalent view, but that's obviously unfair. But do you, do you take that point that, not by yourself or by Jonathan necessarily, but do you take the point that they can become that and it can be almost a little bit of a parody and people do talk too, too much about it? I think so. And again, I, I think it really does come back to the fact that when you're talking about tactics, it's not always something that has happened deliberately. I mean, I remember watching an England game a couple of years ago when Ashley Cole was playing left-back and Adam Johnson was ahead of him. And Johnson got injured after about 25 minutes and I think Milner came on. And Milner, obviously, rather than going down the line, was cutting inside. And, and Cole becoming, became England's key player just because he was getting space ahead of him. Now, that's not something that Manjo has done deliberately, but it's certainly a discussion point. And in the end, it turned out to be, I think, probably the game's key feature. So, again, almost the word tactics, I think, is the problem. I think it's more about shape and about basically who's getting space.
Yeah, and it's also about, I guess, admiring the way that a coach changes things in the course of a game, isn't it, mm -hmm. too? I mean, happened to England in World Cup, so I remember Sven-Jorin Eriksson being comprehensively outcoached by Scolari in that England-Brazil game, just in terms of the way he shifted his players around and constantly asked questions. But again, that's not necessarily what you would call tactics. That's game management, isn't it, yeah, for, for, for want of a better word? But, I mean, going back to what I said to, to Jim at the end of that interview, the, the kind of people who say... Um, or let's say I said they, they played 4-3-3 and someone turns and says, well, I think you'll find it was 4-5-1. That, that's, th th these are not the kind of people that you're necessarily trying to appeal to, are they? Because that's when it does get nonsensical. Well, I always think it's pointless. If you both know what the system was, there's no point in discussing the formation. Absolutely. The formation worked the opposite way. If I want to say to you, oh, Roma play 4-3-3, you know roughly what that means. But I, I've never quite understood the debate between two people who know the system. No system is ever a perfect system, a 4-4-2, a 4-3-3. It's, it's, you know, a shorthand way of explaining it. Because weirdly enough, players don't go and stand in the same place on the pitch for the whole game. And, exactly. and I guess yeah. that's, that, that's the way. I'm not asking you to justify yourself, by the way. I just think it's, a, <laughs> yeah, it, it's yeah, an true. interesting thing. And I think, interestingly, if you sat down with Jim Beglin for a length of time, I'm sure you'd agree about an awful lot. And, and you know, I'm sure it'd be an interesting chat. Maybe we'll do it one day. I'm talking about England, though. Spurs and Arsenal are interesting contrast with regard to what Jim was saying about experience, aren't mm -hmm. they? About... Uh, are either of them experienced enough or good enough to win the title? Or do you think it will come down to the more forceful approach, if you like, of Mourinho or, or indeed Pellegrini? Well, I mean, I think that's the big question. What I would say about Arsenal is compared to maybe three years ago, they have got players who have won things. You look at Podolski's won the Bundesliga, Cazorla's won the European Championships, um, Ozil has won La Liga, Giroud has won Ligue 1. And OK, it's not the Premier League experience, which I do think is crucial. Uh, Flamini is another one, actually, as well, in Syria. But I do think Arsenal lack those characters. They lack that, that winning uh, mentality. And, and a couple of years ago, they had a lot of players who were all in the same situation. They're all 21, 22, 23, you know, Walcott, Diaby, Danielson, Song. And I do think that Arsenal have kind of lacked the characters in, in previous years. And I think they have that now. Whether they have that enough to compete with Chelsea and City and United in that regard, I'm not sure. And I, I do think Arsenal will probably fall away. But um, I think they've got more of a chance than they have in the last five years of winning the title. And, of course, if that moves forward and he builds on that, then they, they, they could start having more of a chance every season. Or do you see this as a transitional season and that we will a power will emerge coming from this season? Well, I think Arsenal have got to take advantage of the fact that the other three sides have changed coaches and there have been issues there. And I think really Arsenal should be top at this side, uh, at this stage. Sorry, It's maybe a little bit harsh because they've done very well so far this season. But you look at their fixtures, you look at the other teams changing managers and, you know, Arsenal, if they had any chance of being in the hunt in April and May, they had to be top at this stage. And they, ha they are, to be fair, they've done their job. Um, but it's going to be whether they can do that against bigger teams. They've had a pretty easy fixture list so far. Yeah, there is actually a stat floating around, which you may have seen, which mm -hmm. is against the same, the exact same games from last season. They're now, they're currently five points down on where they were last yeah. season from the same eight opponents, which would suggest something that there is a slump coming. Absolutely. And they've only played one top half team all season, which was Tottenham. I think the average position of their opponents has been 12th. So it's the equivalent of playing West Brom every week. I mean, we could talk all day about the, the Premier League and who's going to win it, but who do you like at the moment? Because they've all got issues. That's what makes it so yeah, interesting. There's yeah. a vulnerability which hasn't been there, a huge vulnerability with United mm -hmm. and a, a vulnerability away from home with City. Uh, Chelsea, in terms of scoring goals, there seems to be a vulnerability in, with, with their strikers and so on and so forth. And uh, it could be open for an Arsenal or Spurs to win it or one of the, the more traditional recent powers. What, what do you think? 
I started the season thinking City, but I was really surprised at how they um, fell away in those away games. And I now think Chelsea, now that Mourinho has got over the Matt and Louise thing and has embraced them and they're doing a good job, I think they're a real, real force and they're going to be difficult to stop. And I think Torres as well, I've I've been very critical of Torres and even when he's had goal-scoring forms over the last two years, I haven't been convinced. But it might sound strange, but when he had that kind of uh, running battle with Vertonghen against Tottenham, I thought this is the Torres of old. You know, when Torres was firing on all cylinders, he was quite a petulant player. He was always getting into trouble with referees. He was always winding up defenders. And it's clearly been a confidence thing with, with him. And I think if he's in that mood where he wants to rile defenders and then make him look silly by sprinting in behind, maybe he will return and, and score 15, 16 goals this year. And that might be enough. A spiky Torres is a good Torres. You, you, well, it's interesting that you say he could score 15 or 16. If he doesn't, mm-hmm. can you win the title with all your goals coming from midfield? That would be many people's issue with Chelsea, wouldn't it? You can see what Mourinho's trying to do. Yeah, yeah. But can that be sustainable over a season? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. You look at how Chelsea did. I think the first season Mourinho was there when Drogba didn't score many at all and they ended up playing, I think, Johnson in, in a kind of deeper role. I mean, it's it's a strange situation. With the 4-2-3-1, I'm not even sure they're midfielders, are they, with Mata and Hazard and Oscar. And Scherl is the interesting one. I mean, he scored a lot for Leverkusen last year. And if he can get firing, you know, I think there's a decent chance that Chelsea will score enough goals, yeah. If he lets Lukaku go who then goes and scores 20 goals for Everton and they win the title. That is one of the bravest call and most successful bravest calls has ever been, I think, in the, in my in my memory. Yeah, I mean, personally, I still think it's a strange one. I think Lukaku's the best uh, the best striker Chelsea have. I think the thing you first notice with him is his physical power. But the intelligence of his link-up play and the runs he makes in the channels, I think he's already the complete striker and I think it's a like you say, it's a very big risk, I will put it that way. Yeah, I mean, this could someone who could end up being top scorer at the World Cup. Mm, and yeah, yet a team could win their league having let him out on loan. It's quite an extraordinary situation. Would he be a dark horse for the top goal scorer <laughs> at the World Cup, or is that...? Doesn't count. No, okay. Doesn't count. You've got to go for... Uh, whoever's going to be playing up top for Greece, I think. Who okay, can maybe yeah. nick, uh, nick four or five goals. Um not sure who that is these days. No, I was going to say Aristeus anymore. No, it's not Aristeus. I was going to say Mitroglu, but uh, he's been there. Yeah, yeah, it could be, could be him. But yeah, you see, shows the extent to which they are dark horses. But <laughs> yeah, the World Cup normally doesn't throw up too many dark horse top scorers. It's normally a, a yeah. top player who does it, isn't it? Although it's strange these days because the last few tournaments has been won with really few goals. The Euros, the World Cup, just four or five goals. So maybe it's becoming a little bit more open. Maybe more midfielders are scoring goals. So maybe it's a little bit more open. Maybe it could be Oscar or someone like this. So uh, we shall see. That's it from our latest offering in fact just finally I got you in to talk tactics and sort of your half not half term report but your early season report who has impressed you most which team would you pick out and say right they're the ones up to this point they don't have to win anything but up to this point they're the ones who've impressed me most tactically and, and just general performance I think two contrasting teams Roma because of their attacking play I think they've been fantastic in that 4-3-3 system but Atletico who you know won two cup competitions last year I had that I had my doubts that they would be able to sustain that in a league competition because it's about winning and not losing. But I think they've been magnificently organised and Simeone's done a really good job. Yeah, well, we'll see uh, whether they both end up winning something or nothing. Uh, Atletico are the ultimate dark horse as well for the Champions League. They've become the Duriga choice for that. But that is it from us. The European Football Show is in association with our friends at Eurosport and our popularity is growing by the week. So do tell your friends to join the party. You can follow us on Twitter at Show with a Y and get in touch via email on studio at europeanfootballshow.eu. We'll be back in a fortnight's time when Mark Langdon and Alex Chick will be 
in the chairs. And don't forget to get involved in our latest competition and a chance to win a copy of I Am Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Just get those kitchen 11s to us on that email address in reasonable time. That's it, though. My thanks to Kevin Hatchard, to Jim Beglin and Stuart Robson, and, of course, to Michael Cox. Uh, for now, from me, Dave Farah, goodbye. <laughs> 